Well, I would invite you once again to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I shouldn't really, I should say, invite you again. We're beginning to venture into Romans 11 this morning. But the section from Romans 9 to 11 is really one extended argument. It's an extended argument that is really an outgrowth of Paul's pastoral concerns in writing this letter to the church at Rome. Again, my own understanding, just reading what the scripture tells us about the city of Rome, is that there must have been a tremendous upheaval in the church at the time when uh, Claudius the emperor commanded that all the Jews would leave Rome. The church was likely founded, whom we see in uh, the book of Acts at the day of Pentecost, that there were people from Rome that came to worship, and likely there were people that were saved, whether they were all Jews or God-fearers, proselytes from the Gentiles, probably a mix. They went back and they uh, established a fellowship. They established a gathering. They established an ecclesia, an assembly, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Jews are leaving, uh, forced by the emperor to do that. And uh, in that vacuum of uh, Jews no longer being there, it would have been the God-fearers, it would have been the, the Gentiles that were reached through the gospel who would have come in and filled the vacuum. And taken up the leadership, and then when the new administration comes in after Claudius, and the Jews are invited back to Rome, or at least allowed to go back to Rome, uh, what then? Tension. What then? Divisions, problems. And hence, this is a pastoral letter. Again, Paul didn't sit down to write a systematic theology. He didn't write that, sit down to write a manual for evangelism. He wrote a letter to the church. And he's addressing these, these problems. And these are distinctive problems to this particular church. I don't think any other church had such a phenomenon as Jewish leadership that then left and created a vacuum. Um, this church did. And so Paul has to emphasize things like to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He has to emphasize there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all justified by faith um, on equal footing. And so Paul is endeavoring to address, at a pastoral level, the tensions that occurred in this situation. And of course, in this situation, there would have been a lot of recriminations, probably, thrown in the direction of the Jew. Why didn't they believe? And then, what about the Jewish people who are saying, well, why didn't God save more of us? <laughs> Has God been unfaithful to his word? Has the word of God come to no, no effect? Uh, and these are problems that the people were having, and Paul is writing to address those problems, and he's writing to address those problems, looking to reconcile what they believe were the promises of God in the Old Testament to what you see with your eyes as Jesus has come, and as the New Covenant believers have formed, and you see the major part of it is Gentiles, not Jews. What happened? And um, Paul's looking to explain this. He's looking to, first of all, define who Israel is. Not all who are of Israel are truly Israel. Uh, Israel was really the people who, um, like Jacob, wrestled with God. They were those who were the people who of God. Uh, remember, Jacob was uh, the supplanter whose name was changed as he encountered God and, and uh, said, I would not let you go without a blessing. God's blessing towards his people um, are upon those people who will say to God, I, I won't let you go until we have blessings. We, 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 we look to you. We, we, we have no other place to go. I mean, there's a sense in which, folks, Old Testament faith was not a whole lot different than New Testament faith. To whom else will we go, should we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. That, that's what Abraham experienced. That's what all the godly in the Old Covenant experienced. And um, 
that's what the New Testament church needs to see, is that what's happening today is not all that unlike what happened in the Old Testament. God had his principle of election that meant not Ishmael, but Isaac, not Esau, but Jacob. And we see that happening today. God's purpose and plan, according to election, is being fulfilled. God is exercising his sovereign rights over a fallen world by doing as he wills, showing mercy to whom you have mercy. And um, this is something that's not, not shouldn't seem strange to somebody well-versed in what the Old Testament teaches. And you know, what Paul is doing, he's continually bringing up Old Testament passages, Old Testament references to, to support the reality that this is what we ought to have expected. And when he comes into chapter two, he in chapter ten, he reasserts his desire for the Israelites um, to be saved, but he addresses the problem. I mean, if you have the problem, um, he, he first he looks at the past experience of Israel in the Old Testament to try to explain the present situation, and now he asserts what the present situation is. The Jews have not attained what they've sought after, but they've not sought it in the right way. They've looked to establish their own righteousness. They've not submitted to God's righteousness, which is Christ. Christ is the end or the goal of righteousness for everyone who believes. And he again addresses from the Old Testament the fact that it's not a question that God's making this terribly difficult for Jews or Gentiles to come to faith. He has condescended in the incarnation. He's condescended in the uh, work of Christ. He's condescended to the proclamation of the gospel to bring his message near, near to our hearts, near to our mouths, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, that you, you will be saved. And this message has gone forth into the world. And God has called a people that were not a people. Um, but yet he continues to stretch out his hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. That's where he leaves us in chapter 10. That again, the gospel's available to Jew and Gentile alike. And it's not a question of God's um, unwillingness to have Jews saved. It's a question of their own uh, uh, indisposition, their unwillingness, their desire to establish their own righteousness and not to submit themselves to God's righteousness. Now chapter 11, he picks up on some of these things he's been doing. He continues to go back to the Old Testament situation. He continues to address the present situation. But as he began to do in chapter 10, he now puts the focus more upon the future. What can we expect in the future? And particularly when he raises the question, have they stumbled in order that they might fall? In verse 11. And he denies that that's true. Israel has not completely fallen. And there will be Jews being saved, there will be Israelites being saved, as well as Gentiles being saved. And let me just say this, that when you begin to look at the future picture, when you begin to look at what God has said um, the hope of the future is, that's where the prophecy mavens come out in full force. That's when they put their microscopes onto the Bible or their... Uh, they're magnifying glasses and they want to insect, uh, insect, dissect every single word and comma in order to support whatever it is that they think is the prophetic truth of God's word. And so what people do with Romans 11 is they argue about it incessantly. 
And they argue about it in terms of was Paul teaching premillennialism? Was Paul teaching postmillennialism? Was Paul teaching amillennialism? And I just have to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not teaching any millennialism. That's not his concern. Again, he's not, this is not a theological treatise about the millennium. In fact, Paul says nothing about the millennium. He says nothing about a thousand years. That's a concern that really is isolated to one passage in the Bible, which is the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. And then, and then alone, you come into the whole matter of a thousand years and what that means. Well, that's, not, that's not Paul's concern. He's not arguing about it, and he's not talking about it, and he's not expounding a millennial view. He's expounding a view of how Jews and Gentiles get along in one body. It's a pastoral concern. It's a concern about the unity of the church. It's a concern that Gentiles should not get all uppity and proud about the fact they've been included and think, well, the, Gentile, the Jews are just simply out of the picture. And then have negative attitudes towards them. Or have something less than a, a joyful uh, celebration if Jews come to faith. They're beginning to think this is a Gentile thing and not a Jewish thing. And what a sad thing that anti-Semitism existed really throughout human history. And uh, you, know, you see the rise of it today. And it's simply so unjustified in terms of God's word. In terms of what Paul teaches about Israel's place in the heart of God, Israel's place in the um, work of the church. So Paul's not teaching a millennial position. Now you might sit around, you might sit back and say, well, how does uh, Paul's statements accord with my views of the millennium? But let me tell you something. Whatever your views are in the millennium, you, you got that independent of Paul. You got that independent of Paul. Paul's not talking about millennium. So whatever your views on that subject is, uh, you may have them, and you might act, ask yourself, well, how does Paul's view square with my view about the millennium? But don't for a minute think Paul's teaching a millennium. Don't for a minute think that Paul is looking to expound a viewpoint. If you would have asked him, Paul, are you pre-poster? Ah, he would have said, what in the world are you talking about? He wouldn't have entered into that discussion. It's no part of what he's talking about in Romans chapter 11. So, I said it. I'm not going to be popular with anybody who holds a millennial position with any strength by making such denials, but I really think that's reality. I think the reality is Paul is not going there. He's addressing church-related matters of Jew and Gentile together in one body. He begins with the question of verse 1. I ask then, in the light of the fact that God still has his hands stretched out, but yet these are not a people who have been obedient, and this is a people that are going to be stirred up to jealousy by a foolish nation. Uh, they're going to get angry by a nation that uh, God receives, and he's going to be, uh, they're going to be left out of the picture. Um, the question is, has God then rejected his people? And it's almost like you say, well, Paul, no, wait a minute. We've been listening. He hasn't rejected them. His hands are stretched out to them. Paul says, you got it. He says, by no means, by no means has God rejected his people. His hands are stretched out to them. He sends forth the gospel to them. And he still desires their salvation every bit as much as Paul does. When Paul says in chapter 10 and verse 1, his heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. Paul's not more merciful than God. Paul's not more concerned about the salvation of the lost than God is. Don't think Paul outstrips God's mercy. He doesn't. You don't and I don't. 
God's concerned about them as well. But again, it's not a question of God's going to put a gun to their head and say, you've got to believe or you're dead. God sends forth the message of the gospel. And yes, he's sovereign over the outcome of everything that occurs in life, but there's still this legitimate secondary causes that God does not violate. God does not violate their will to not be willing, their desire to be rebellious and disobedient. But still, God's not rejected his people. Now, how do you know that? Well, Paul says, look at me. Look at me. I'm an example of the reality that God has not rejected his people. Now, again, people like to take a statement like that, God's not rejected his people. He's by no means has he rejected his people. They say, well, that means every single Jew will, some, will some, sometime, somewhere, at some point in history, come to faith. I don't think that's Paul saying that. Paul's saying, I'm an example Today, I'm an example. Don't expect God to do something in 2050 that he didn't do in, you know, in 50 AD. He was doing this, he'll do the same thing today. Again, the work of the church hasn't changed. The work of the gospel hasn't changed. And Paul's not saying that you need, that there's some time when this great golden age of, the, of Jewish salvation is going to come. He didn't say some tremendous thing is going to occur like the rapture of the church, and then the Jews then get saved. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that there's going to be the great latter rain revival, and all the Jews are going to be saved. All the things that people put out there. Um, Paul says nothing about any of that. He says, I'm an example. You want to know how, that God's not rejected his people? He says, I myself am an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, he goes on in other places to say that not so, just that. It's not just that he descends, is a descendant from Abraham and uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, but that he was of the strictest sect of the, of the Jewish, Jewish religion. He was the most devoted uh, as to zeal, persecuting the church. As to the law, uh, perf- perfect. He saw himself as a, one who did the law, obeyed the law. I'm sorry, before the law he says blameless, not perfect. Blameless. Without blame. He was alive once before the law, so he thought, and then sin came, sin revived, the law came, sin, sin revived, and I died. And that, that seemed to be, in Romans 7, the whole matter of his being a covetous man. His persecuting of the church being really based upon the fact that he was such a zealous Pharisee that he, this was the way of prominence. This is the way you know, there's ways to get by. There's ways to get advancement in certain groups. If you're a member of a political party, you know there's ways to get advancement in that party. And there's ways if you say something or do something, you won't get advancement in the political party. The same thing was true in the Jews' religion. You get advancement by touting the party line, going along with what the party line said, persecuting the church. That was something he was taking a lead in. And that got him popularity. That got him uh, his base. He was playing to his base, as we say today. He was playing to his base. And his base loved it. And Paul realized he's just a coveted man. He just wanted power. He just wanted prestige. He just wanted to be taking this advancement in the Jewish religion, stepping above and far away, so that he's persecuting Israel's God. When on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? 
And the last thing he would have expected in the world is the answer, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. How in the world did he come to persecute Israel's God? I mean, that was the voice of God. I mean, he heard a voice from heaven. And we heard, we know about voices from heaven from the Old Testament. When voices came from heaven, whose voice was it? It was the voice of God. When a voice spoke from the mountain, the words of the Ten Commandments, when a single question, it was Israel's God that was speaking. And when a voice spoke on the road to Damascus, Paul didn't have a question, who, who was the one doing the speaking? It was the God who was on the mountain and spoke to the nation, the words of the Ten Commandments. He came and spoke the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How does a a zealous Pharisee who's seeking to to be righteous by the keeping of the law come to the place he came to that he's persecuting Israel's God? It's because he was just so filled with his own quest for prominence, his own quest for influence, his own quest to be the the top dog, the big man. He was covetous to the heart. He didn't realize it until the commandment came with power, probably on the road to Damascus. Lord, how did I get here? I know who you are now, but how did I get here where I'm persecuting the church? I'm going up to Damascus to persecute the church. Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't your word say something about coveting? Hey, what am I? I'm just a man coveting after power. I think something like that is how this all works. All these scriptures kind of put put together in, in Paul's mind. But yet, I'm saved. I'm saved, even with all these disqualifications. Uh, I'm, I'm an example, he tells uh, T- Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy, uh, of God's mercy to the chief of sinners. I'm also an example of God's power to convert willful, self-absorbed, self-motivated, self-aggrandizing Pharisees and to bring them to the faith of the gospel. As God rejected his people, by no means I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's saying Jews are welcome. Israel is welcome. We don't want to diminish our desire for Israel's salvation. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they should be saved. Church can't get so absorbed in the Gentile mission it forgets about the Jews from whom the gospel came. But yet, Paul is still redefining these terms. In the New Covenant, these terms take on a meaning that has continuity with the past, but it's also transformed in another way. His people are not just Jews. His people now are Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And his people are a people who not only are Jew and Gentile, but they're also foreknown. Foreknown. And, and that means foreloved. That means God had set his love upon Gentiles. 
God had set his love upon a people whom he was purposed and determined to bring to faith, to send forth the gospel and to bring them to himself, whom he foreknew, he foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, he says in chapter 8. And whom he foreknew, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. So God's in the business of saving Jews as well as Gentiles, the foreknown people of God. And again, they consist of Jew and Gentile, but hey, Gentiles, you know what? They consist of Jews. And you Jews in the congregation, you know what? They consist in Gentiles as well. And just as we're equal in sin and saved on the same footing, we're foreknown in the same way. No greater love to one than the other. Paul has another example to affirm the fact that God has not rejected Israel. He's not rejected his people whom he foreknew, of whom Jews are a part. He brings up this historical matter found in the book of 1 Kings pertaining to Elijah the prophet. I believe it's in chapter 19, 18 or 19. I'm not going to go back there with you. But when Elijah flees from the presence of the threatening Jezebel, and he finds himself in great despair, his complaint to God is, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. Well, you know, you say, what a Debbie Downer, what a, what a, what a depressive individual. But you know, the fact is, Elijah's problem is, I mean, what he's saying is real. Uh, prophets of Yahweh had been killed by the prophets of Baal. They had demolished the altars of Yahweh. Well, actually, the, you know, I don't know about the, the multiple altars, but I imagine there were other altars. Well, actually, the temple had not yet been built, or yes, it had been. It had been at this time. Maybe other altars ought to be demolished. I'm not really sure what the story is there. But the problem is, they were still altars in which worship was given to Yahweh in the northern kingdom. At the point of the dividing of the kingdom. There was still the worship of Yahweh that was going on. But it was polluted by the fact that Jezebel brought in her own uh, religion from Sidon. And, they, he, and Baal worship, the Canaanite religion, had experienced this great revival. And Elijah's complaint is, I alone am left. Paul says, but what is God's reply to him? What is this conversation that we have of Elijah with the Lord? Well, the Lord's response was, your problem is, Elijah, that you don't know what you don't know. I mean, you think you're alone because you're here alone, and what you're experiencing is going through it yourself and nobody seems to be you know, surrounding you with their help and their support. But God says, you don't know what I know. I know that I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
How would you like to have 7,000 Reformed Baptists hanging around somewhere that we didn't know about? We think we're alone. We think nobody loves us. Everybody hates us. Things are just as awful as awful could be. And, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, I was just talking to uh, Lynn Byerly this week, and he found, like, three churches in the Utica area that want to get involved in our fellowship. Like, who are you? We don't know you. <laughs> yeah, we don't. But that doesn't mean they're not known to God. You know, not everything that's going on in the Christian world are things that we know about. And, and a lot of times, our own problem is that we just judge the world by our own experience. If we haven't heard it, it doesn't exist. If we haven't seen it, it doesn't exist. Just whatever we're experiencing, that we just generalize. That's what the whole world is experiencing. And the Portuguese guy comes in and he sits in the view and he prays for an hour and he says, man, God must be doing something very interesting in, in, uh, in, uh, in Brazil. Brazilian, actually, but in the Portuguese language. God had his 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 men. I'm not sure if that's just you know, the, 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 the word for male. Maybe there were some females as well, not included in that number. Maybe there was the men and their wives. Maybe there were men and their wives and their children. There may have been a revival going on Elijah knew nothing about. And God says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God has a remnant. A remnant of his people. A remnant of Jews that he's bringing to himself. And just because the church at Rome had become largely a Gentile church because of the exile of Jews, and many of them probably never came back, probably settled in other places, that doesn't mean God doesn't have a remnant people. They're chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, Paul then says, it's no longer on the basis of works. It's not what we've accomplished, but what God's accomplished. It's not, what, it's not necessarily the, the thing that we've achieved in our ministries. And, and we think if God's not doing it through us, he's not doing it anywhere. But God's doing it. Not on the basis of human works, or not on the basis of the works of missions, or the works that we do. And God's gracious purposes just breaks down all the boundaries of our own categories, our own limited perspectives. Paul says it's on the basis not of works but grace, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Isn't that an amazing insight? You know, people that think that the, the reformers or the followers of the reformers committed some sort of outrage by adding um, to the salvation by grace the word alone, <laughs> grace alone. Well, I don't know how you reply to what Paul says about grace. If it's not grace only, it's no longer grace. If it's on the basis of works, it cancels out grace. As soon as you lift a finger to do something they think is your contribution to what God does and what Christ has done and what the gospel does, then you've made it a work. Your work. So we sought to applaud you rather than bless and praise God. Well, now Paul has made those statements. He says in verse 8, drawing a conclusion, what then? Well, the conclusion is Israel failed. It's not God's failure. It's not the failure of his word. It's not the failure of the gospel. 
is a failure of unbelieving Israel. They failed to obtain what it was seeking. It's interesting, again, it's not that they weren't seeking. Paul sought all the wrong way to please Israel's God, even to the place of persecuting the church. And you have to factor that in. Let me just say this. You have to factor that in when you think of the situation in the church in Rome. Is that not only were there fairly few believers in Jesus among the Roman church, but who were the people instigating for persecution at that time? It wasn't wide... I'm sorry? The Jews. The Jews, yeah. There wasn't widespread Roman persecution until later. Right now, if persecution has existed at all, it's because of Jewish instigation. They followed on Paul's heels, going from place to place to place. And, and so, you know, again, you can see that there might have been some antipathy on the part of Gentiles towards Jews. Well, they didn't believe, and not only didn't they believe in the gospel, that's frustrating in and of itself. We don't like that. But they're also instigating against us. They're persecuting. They're looking to take the leadership in persecution. And so, Paul says... This is failure. This is miserable failure. This is the total failure. Again, not of God's word. Not of his promises, not of his purposes, not of his plans, not of his election by grace. But it's their failure to obtain what it was seeking. Again, they sought it all the wrong way. And in the place of their obtaining what they were seeking, the elect obtained it. The elect And what does that mean? Elect Jews and elect Gentiles. That's God's people. That's the reconstituted people of God. Elect Jews and elect Gentiles. The elect obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Went back to Pharaoh. In chapter 9. And he goes back to the quotations. I believe he quoted this before. Earlier on from Isaiah chapter 6. I think it's put in a bit different words, but um, my eye is not running across it, but it is Isaiah 6 that is being spoken of here. When it says that uh, God gave them a spirit of stupor, Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Now maybe there was another chapter that he's quoting this from. A, I'm sorry? This Isaiah 29.10. They give you 29.10? That's funny, my Bible doesn't give me that at all. <laughs> but let's turn to Isaiah 29.10. That, is, uh, that harkens to what's in chapter 6 about a... Um, about ears that don't hear and eyes that do not see. And again, you go back to that passage and you see that, you know, though there's an aspect of the sovereignty of God that enters in, there's also the matter of the responsibility of man because that judgment comes upon idolaters. The whole land was filled with idols. And when you worship an idol, you become like what you worship, and that means you're blind. Like uh, the idols have eyes but can't see. The idols have ears but can't hear. And that's how they became. They became those that had eyes that did not see and ears that did not hear. And so uh, 29, which is the verse? 10. 10. 
For the Lord has poured out on you a deep, a spirit of deep sleep, has closed your eyes, and then in parentheses the prophets, and covered your ears, in parentheses the seers. Again, it's not exact exactly what was there. It may be what Paul's doing is he's doing a combination of Isaiah 6, Isaiah 29, and he comes up with these words, <clears throat> these words that speak of um, a spirit of stupor. You know, when you see somebody in the midst of a, cri- a crisis and they're exp- <coughs> experiencing um, just being overwhelmed by whatever circumstances they've just uh, um, they've just experienced. Sometimes you just have to shake them because they're they're in another place, or they may be drunk on, on wine or spirits and having a spirit that just doesn't see reality for what it is. You just want to shake them. Well, that's where they are. They have the spirit of stupor, like drunken people, like people who are experiencing. Uh, I'm sorry. We used to call it battle fatigue. What's the new word for it? It's three letters, and I can't think of what it is. P P T S D. Huh? P T S D. P T S. Yeah. P. Yes. Uh, yeah. We're. Uh, you have a, a, a reaction to uh, uh, just a situation that just puts you in in a spin. And that's a spiritual state of these people. You talk to them about the glories of heaven, and they don't get it. They talk to them about the terrors of hell, and, and they don't get it. They just don't. Then they can't be moved by anything. They can't be motivated by anything. They're in their own own world. The pastor used to all the time say they're in La La Land. Well, maybe they're in La La Land, wherever that is. They're just in a place that you just can't reach them. And then Paul then uh, Paul then quotes David, and that's pretty. It's a little bit clearer, though again, it's not an exact quotation of the 69th Psalm. This one I did look at, the 69th Psalm. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And this is a prayer. This is what we call a... Um, Uh, my mind is just not, it's just, I'm not getting the words this morning. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, it's uh, when you pray judgment upon people. What do we call that? Imprecatory. Imprecatory, thank you. I don't know why I'm not getting the words this morning. Yeah, imprecatory prayer. That's what you have in Psalm 69. And we look at those imprecatory prayers and we think they're pretty awful. How in the world do you pray such things when we're called upon to pray for people? We're called to pray for God's saving of people. And again, that is uh, that is Paul's desire. But, but you have a situation in the 69th Psalm where the people had just so hardened their own hearts. They just had so embraced a, a pattern of living that it just cried out for some manner of justice that would come against these people. We might say poetic justice that would be brought against these people. And it's an interesting thing that this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. We often think of Psalm 69 being one of the most quoted Old Testament passages. But there are just a number of places where you have references that the New Testament tells us um, were true of Jesus. So in a sense, uh, this is a, 
a prayer in which David, in crying out to God in the midst of uh, the deep waters that have come up to his neck and sinking in mire, where there was no foothold and coming into deep waters, where the floods had swept over him that he describes in verses 1 and 2, um, may well be a, a picture of the sufferings of Christ. And um, what uh, is said of, of this, uh, of this suffering person, is that they, uh, they, uh, they engaged in this suffering that he endured uh, without cause. They persecuted me without a cause. And uh, then in verse 9, uh, there is the quotation we find in John, when Jesus went and cleansed the temple, for zeal for your house has consumed you, uh, consumed me. Again, that's a, a, a reference to Jesus. And then the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I think that comes in in chapter 15 in the book of Romans. And that's also a quotation with reference to Jesus. So what do we have? About four of them now? And then we have uh, just a picture of how this sufferer is made to endure. This the anger, the reproach, the, the behavior of people around him that uh, affected him with such a... a a depth, he says in verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. He brings his complaint into the presence of God. He says, Lord, you know what I'm experiencing. You know what I'm going through. You know that this is unjust. They've hated me without a cause. Um, they've done all these things when I've had zeal for your house. I'm made to bear the reproaches because they hate you, Lord. I'm bearing the reproach that they would uh, uh, that they would uh, heap on you. Um, they're heaping it on me as your representative, as the one you sent into the world. If it's in fact Jesus who is in view, he says, "Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, I found none." No one cared for me. No one had any kind of human kindness, any decency. They were just so wickedly hard-hearted. I don't know how many of you read much of Dickens, but when you read Dickens, isn't it astounding? If, if, if the portrayal is honest at all, how hard-hearted people were at that time. And just read Oliver Twist. In his trip to London, 70 miles that he walked to London, and in all the places he went, nobody cared for this little kid. You know, he learned what it was that people threatened him, I will set the beetle on you, the cops. We'll get the cops to take you away. Uh, he'd come into town and he would say, you know, anybody caught begging will be you know, put into prison. And... But he, could, he had no money, he had no food, and just every now and again he came upon someone that had a heart for a little kid. But most of the majority of the people didn't. The people in the orphanage didn't. The people in the workhouses, how brutal they were. There was just a level of brutality that you would think in a Christian country, as England purported to be, how in the world was there that kind of just self-absorption and lack of kindness. And that's what the sufferer is experiencing. No one cares. And so his imprecation to God is, in verse 22, let their own table before them 
become a snare. As they sit down to their rich delicacies, oh, I'm here starving. As they sit down to their comforts, let that table become a snare. Let them choke on their food. Let them uh, be so besotted with their wine that they fall. When they're at peace, let it become a trap. They only want peace for themselves. They want war for everyone else. They want conflict. They want trouble that they would make for others. And they want to live lives of comfort. They want to live lives of peace. They want to live lives of abundance and prosperity. They care nothing about anyone but, but any, anyone but themselves. And so there was this prayer that they would get justice. But their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. These ones in Israel who have such access to the light of God's Torah, his word that enlightens the eyes, yet let their eyes be darkened because they don't want to see. They're so filled with their own themselves and their idols. They can't see, they can't hear, or just judge them because their sins make judgment so, so warranted that the balances would, the, the, the weights would be balanced, that the, the scales would be balanced that these troublers of Israel would in fact themselves find trouble. And that's what Paul says is happening with the unbelief of Israel. All of their advantages, they've turned to disadvantages. They've abused them, they've not used them properly, um, and trouble is coming upon them. God's judgment is coming upon them. David prays that it would be so, that there would be a kind of poetic justice that would come upon such hard-hearted evildoers. But as the quote from the psalm speaks about their stumbling, they're being caught in a trap, which Israel is. They're in a trap of their own devising. They're in a trap of their own making. Their own unbelief has just made it to be where they stumble at the cross. That which is the power of God for salvation to the Jew becomes something they stumble at. They fall over. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to which they're appointed, as Peter tells us, is this condition of their stumbling in order that they might fall. Is this complete? Is this total? Is there no hope for Israel's future? And Paul's answer is, by no means. This is a stumble indeed. But yet, though they stumble, where's God? holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is not necessarily a permanent condition and it's not a complete and total condition. By no means, he'll go on to say that Israel has fallen away in part. It's not a total falling away. Paul's a Christian. The disciples of our Lord, I'm sorry, Paul's a Jew. The disciples of our Lord were Jewish. God's able to preserve for himself 7,000 prophets who won't bow the knee to Baal. But Paul says what you need to see is that through their trespass, through the fall of the Jews, the sin of the Jews, the trespass of the Jews, in the face of gospel mercies, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And again, if we're thinking what he's taught before in 
from Deuteronomy 32, it's so to make Israel jealous. God's going to make them jealous with another nation, just like they made God jealous with their idols. God's going to turn the tables. And by favoring a nation that is no nation, God's going to make them jealous. Look at the blessings that God has granted to the Gentiles. And Israel's going to be, in short term, uh, called upon to suffer the ravages of the Jewish wars that are going to destroy their city, destroy their temple. There's going to be a new Babylon in town, the Romans, that are going to do what the Babylonians did. And I guess Paul's hope is that just as the Jews came back from captivity, a chastened people, so we're going to see Israel eventually become chastened. We're going to see many from Israel come to faith in Christ. That's Paul's continued hope. But again, it's not a numbers game. Not how, what's the percentage of Israel that in any generation needs to come to faith for Paul's words to be fulfilled? It's just that God's intent and God's purpose is that they should be brought to faith having been made jealous by the blessings that God has given to Israel. And weren't the Gentiles in that situation not too long before this? Oh, that we had the blessings of Israel. A lot of them didn't want to be circumcised, but they wanted the blessings of Israel's God. Now the Jews see Israel, see the church as a blessed people. But you know, there's a sense in which we have to so live and we have to so act as if though we, there's something in us that's worthy to be envied. They ought to be jealous of the fact that we have these blessings. I was, there's so much desire that my Jewish relatives would say, Look at where he's gone. Look, look, at the, look at the joy he has. Look at the benefits and advantages that he lives with that we don't have. Oh, that we would be made jealous. But there's a sense in which I have to live a life that, ex- that exudes such hope and confidence and joy and peace and believing that they're going to look at me and say, well, you know, there's riches that guy seems to have that we don't have. Why? Maybe there's something his God gives them him that uh, we don't possess in our own belief. And that's the way people are made jealous, to know the blessings that God's people enjoy. How many people are jealous of your faith in Christ? Maybe most of the people you don't even know you have faith in Christ. hope that's not the case, but it may be. But if they do know you have faith in Christ, or they say, well, you know, I just envy the, the joy of that person. I envy the stability of their life. I envy the confidence that they live with. I envy the blessings that they possess. So they ask the reason of the hope that's in you. I think that's that's Paul's thought. It's to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full, this reads here, full inclusion mean? just means fullness. And fullness is an interesting word. Um, it just means, that, like I mentioned, the capacity of a, of a bottle of water being filled up to the full. I mean, yesterday I spent over an hour waiting on a line to get the bottles filled uh, for the church. Uh, but when I got there, I was thankful. I just had a four-gallon bottle because I'd be out of there in a hurry the people with these great 10 gallon things five of them they're going to wait a while to get all that filled so it depends what you have to fill that is the fullness 
But God has a fullness of Israel that he's going to bring in. And what that is, I mean, I don't know. What percentage of Israel, I don't know. How it's reckoned, I don't know. But there will be a fullness. And what will their fullness mean? You Gentiles at Rome, what will it mean if there's a fullness of Israel coming into the Christian church? Say, wait a minute, Jews are making a comeback. We don't like that. We're, We're the guys in control right now. We want to keep our control. We don't want them to make a comeback. No, it should be joy. It should be riches for the Gentiles. We've received riches by their fall. How much riches should it mean to us that they come back to faith? They come back to, their, to Israel's God. And look what he says. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. But I'm talking to you guys. What will it mean to you when Israel's fullness comes? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Hey guys, it means life from the dead. It means something you should receive with, with, with wild enthusiasm. We don't have time to go on, but you see where Paul's going with this? Again, it's practical. It's church-related. It's people in the pews reading this letter and saying, Paul's talking to me. He's talking about my attitudes to the Gentiles or to the Jews, if I'm a Gentile, or to the Jew if I'm a Gentile, and how we get along with one another and how we recognize that this is not a threat to our identity to see another people group come into the church and, and thrive. I mean, I think you see it in the churches today. I mean, we could have really bad attitudes towards if, if the complexion of our community changes. And we've found in a place where, like, uh, we've seen it over in Cornwall, or we've seen it in uh, Hazleton. We began to have not just one or two Spanish speakers, but a whole host of Spanish speakers that come into the church. And we find it's an important thing with the change in our community for this church to be bilingual. I mean, got all the people out there that are just influenced by the thought of bilingualism as if it's the most horrid thing that ever existed. I guess I have a problem with that because my, you know, my, my grandfather, he spoke hardly any English. He spoke Yiddish in the streets and, you know, he had a very thick accent. He made some efforts to learn English, but he was never very good at it and very competent at it. And I didn't know, he, I did, I did know uh, Yiddish, but, I mean, see, you see the point. You know, they came. They came as strangers, but where, should, where was the Christian church for them? Where was the Christian church for the for that group group of people when they came? We have to be the same way, open-hearted, open-handed, desiring the blessing and good of others, and desiring if the church is changing racially, if it's changing ethnically, or it's changing in terms of different people groups coming in. I mean, Romans is a letter for us, right? Romans is the letter for us. How to experience that change with the sense, well, it's not our, our place in the church that's the crucial thing. It's Christ's glory that's the crucial thing. It's the salvation of sinners that's the crucial thing. And our hearts should be attuned to God's heart with respect to those things and not be narrow-hearted and narrow-minded and cut ourselves off from what God's doing at any, any given point in time. We'll have more to say about this next week as we move on to what it means that all Israel shall be saved. I think you know where I'm going with reference to this thing. 
I don't conceive it as being every single Jew at any given period of time. Or um, I do conceive it to be um, just the totality of, the, of, of what he's called before, the elect. The totality of the people of God who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means people of all kinds of ethnicities. Because the book of Revelation tells us there's a multitude that no man can number. And where do they come from? Every kindred, every tongue, every tribe. Let me God bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this time and your word. We're thankful for the letter to the Romans. And we're thankful for its practical bent. In addressing the hearts and minds of your people. With respect to the changes that took place at Rome. And how the people in the church um, responded to those changes. And how there was many attitudes that were not, not right. We're thankful for Paul's letter to as, that as a, one who was a, a, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, that you made that man who's so filled with his own uh, racial superiority that you made him to be an apostle to those very nations that at one time he, he rejected and he despised. And you called him not only to love his own people, not only to love the nation of, of Israel, not only to yearn for their salvation, but to actually leave his own comforts to go to seek the Gentile nations, to bring them through the gospel uh, to the faith of Israel. And we pray, Lord, that we would rejoice to see the work of your kingdom expanding in the world. We rejoice that whatever differences might exist between people in a natural way, they would be more than compensated by the unity we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that, that that would transcend every single divide that exists among people. We ask you that you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your word. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning. We ask you to bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. As we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks who are with us on Zoom, I'm going to turn the program off for a little bit and I'll put it back on about 5 of 11. See you then. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you. Was that Michael? That was Eric. You guys made it. I got a letter from Sue that you were thinking of not venturing out. Good. I gotta turn this off.